If you have your Bible, open up to Joshua chapter 9. And um, we're continuing our, our walk through Joshua. We've been in it for a while now, almost a year, believe it or not, we've been walking through Joshua. And like I've said in the past, we're going to be speeding up a little bit. You kind of notice we've been taking clumps of chapters, and then we're going to do that this morning with chapter 9. You all hear me okay? I don't know if I'm coming through this or not, but um, <clears throat> good. All right. um, who in here is familiar with Homer's The Iliad? Anybody at least heard of that book? Anybody actually read the book? Parts of the book? It, who in here doesn't know if you're familiar with it at all? Homer's The Iliad? Okay. I, I bet you are. If anybody, have we heard of the term the Trojan horse? Okay, so that's where that book, that's where that, that term comes from. It comes from Homer's, the Iliad, and the Trojan horse is, is this, uh, this battle that raged over the city of Troy. The Greeks were invading. They weren't able to go and, and take the city. Over ten long years, they were invading the city. Eventually, their great warrior Achilles dies in the midst of the battle, and the Greeks are ready to throw in the towel and head back home and let the city have itself and, and not be conquered by them. But then they had this general by the name of Ithaca who came up with this plan that we're going to destroy some of our own ships and we're going to build this horse. And in the horse, we're going to stuff some of our military and we're going to set it outside the city walls. And then the rest of our ships are going to sail home. And so they did this throughout the day and overnight. And so when the city woke up, the city of Troy woke up, they see this massive horse outside the city and they take it as a sign of victory and a gift from the Greeks from all the warfare that had happened. So they bring the city or the horse into the city. And then that night, the army of Greeks that were hidden within the horse come out, burn the city to the ground and then the city of Troy falls. And that's where we get the term the Trojan horse. And it's a military tactic to which... Uh, we refer to, and sometimes not even in military situations, when you try to hide something in order to bring someone else's downfall. You know, you use the, the idea of the, the Trojan horse methodology. Well, Homer's Iliad is not historic. Uh, it is a, a fictional book, even though it's based upon some uh, actual events that happened. But through archaeological evidence, they've been able to find that a lot of things in Homer's Iliad is not backed by history. Whereas when we look in the Bible, there are numerous things, and not everything yet, but numerous things that have been backed by history and backed by findings in Scripture that we can rely upon. And as we come to Joshua chapter 9, we have a Trojan horse incident and deals with the people of Gibeon uh, in the Gibeonite deception, as your uh, title of chapter may read. But we're going to be reading through chapter 9. We're going to walk through this this morning uh, we're going to see what God wants us to, to see, what God wants us to learn, what God wants to speak over our hearts. Uh, but let's begin as, as we begin chapter 9. Just to remind you, uh, the conquest has began with Jericho in chapter 6. Israel met defeated Ai because of Achan's sins in stealing and coveting and hiding what belonged to the God. And then in chapter 8, uh, the Israelites take I finally after they reconcile their relationship with God. They follow God's commandments and I falls to the ground. And we come into chapter 9 after the Israelites have now reconciled their relationship with God and read the word of God and heard the word of God. It seems like they're ready to move on and be successful in whatever God has laid before them. But that's not the case. And I think we're going to see that this is actually good news for us 
in what we read about the Israelites. Beginning in chapter 9, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, we don't have a map on the screen. You may have a map in the back of your Bible to be able to look uh, at these, uh, where these people came from. Basically, this is speaking of the middle part of the land of Canaan, or what we call the promised land. Uh, so Canaan is going to be divided up into three parts, the north, south, and the midlands. And Israel is in the midst of taking the middle part of Canaan. This is the promise that God had given to Israel, given to Abraham, about the covenant that he established with them, that all this would belong to you and your descendants. And so this has been coming to fruition over 400 plus years, and now Israel is taking the land. Well, Israel has already taken Jericho. They already taken Ai. And so once seeing that Jericho has fallen, Ai has been kind of obliterated off the face of the map. The, the middle part of Canaan decides, their kings, that we're going to make a treaty. We're going to rally together because we have to take on this force that is now in our land trying to kick us out. And so that's what verse 1 and 2 is speaking of. It's trying to give us this mental picture. If we were an original reader in this time, we would understand this is where these people came from. They're in the middle part of this, this of Canaan, or what we call the promised land. But then something happens. When all the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks from their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgah, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So Gibeon decides to do what? All the kings are rallying together to make a treaty. Treaty. Gibeon would be in the midst of the midlands of, the Can of Canaan. And what does Gibeon decide to do on their own part? Do they line up with, Can with the people in Canaan already or line up with the Israelites? The Israelites, which is a huge blow because we, we have been able to find the city of Gibeon. It's in a place known as El Jeb. It was found in 1956. And what we know about Gibeon is Gibeon was a fortified city built upon a wall. It would make it almost an impossible city to take, a lot like the city of Troy for the Greeks. But Gibeon, instead of lining themselves up with the other kings in the promised land and the other kings in Canaan, decide that they're going to line themselves with Israel. And they decide they're going to live. And what led them to that course of action? Well, they heard what happened at Ai. They heard what happened at Jericho. And so they decide they're going to make this treaty, but they're going to do it in an act of deception. We're going to make them think we're from far away. Now, we know Israel's camped in a place called Gilgah. You can look that up on a map if you want, which is about 25 miles from where Gibeon was settled. And so they come up with this plan. We're going to go 25 miles to the camp of Israel and we're going to align ourselves with them. Basically what Gibeon's doing, and we can't blame them. They're choosing life. They know what is coming with Israel. They've heard of the stories. Matter of fact, we're told they only heard of Ai and Jericho, but when they come to the camp of Israel, they tell Joshua something completely different. Let's pick back up in verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, and that's another name for the Gibeonites, and these are all people from uh, Noah's sons, Ham, who was cursed by Noah after the flood because he saw his daddy naked and did nothing about it, so he got the curse, and this is 
coming to fruition. You can read that in Genesis. But we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. So there's, there's one lie, right? Verse 7, But the men of Israel to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? Because this was the commandment God had given Israel to do. Do not align yourself with any people in the land because they will corrupt you. They will bring you into their sinful ways. God set this up as a parameter so the people of God would be protected from the sin of the land. The people in Canaan, I know we read this, and in our generation, and looking at it at this point in time, it seems like this is a hard thing to grasp, but a loving God would lead His people to conquer this, this land and drive out and kill all these other people. But these people were not good people. They sacrificed their children. They indulged in sexual immoral behavior. Uh, they worshiped false gods. They denied the one true God, even though they came from the line of Noah. It's not that they didn't have the ability to know God. They just denied that he was the God. And so they went about their own ways. And what the Bible tells us, if you go to the book of Romans in chapter 1, is when we make that course of action, when we deny that God is God, and He reigns on high, and He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. When we deny that, what God does in His love and His grace and His mercy is He hands us over to our sinful indulgences. And this is what He's done to the people here in Canaan. He has handed them over in His grace and mercy. He says, all right, if that's the way you want to live, I'm going to let you live that way, but it's going to lead to your destruction. And that's what our sin does for us. In God and His grace and mercy, God isn't going to make us love Him. He wants us to choose to love Him. He wants us to choose to crown Him on high. He wants us to choose to surrender our lives to Him and submit to Him. But when we don't, God's going to I love you too much to force you to do this, so I'm going to hand you over to your sinful passions, and you're going to see what that's going to bring about in your life, which is always pain. Well, these people, they, they had denied God completely, and they had heard about what God was doing. We know that from Rahab with Jericho. We know that from the people of Ai. We know that from the Gibeonites. Going back to verse 7, or verse 8, the, the Israelites, they know something's fishy, but they don't know what. So they want to know, where, where are you from? If you live among us, sorry, verse 7, then how can we make a covenant with you? How can we make a pact? How can we make this promise? How can we draw this contract with you that we'll be in a treaty with you when God has told us to do the exact opposite? So the Gibeonites, verse 8, said to Joshua, we are your servants. They're basically saying, we are submitting to you. We're surrendering to you. We're going to be your bond servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? You see how the Gibeonites, they're completely trying to avoid that conversation. And so they say, we've come, verse 9, from a very distant country, your servants have come because the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Basically, they say what Rahab said to the spies when they went to Jericho. But you notice what parts they left out? The whole reason they went to Israel in the first place. They went to Israel because they, verse 3, they had heard what God had done 
to Jericho and I. But when they come to Israel at this point in time, their act of deception is, we're going to make this perceive that we've come from such a far-off journey. We're so worn out. Our, our bread is old and moldy and crumbly. Our shoes, shoes are worn out. Our clothes are worn out. The things we carry our wine in are breaking. We've traveled so far because we've heard what God has done beyond the Jordan. They do not bring up, we've heard what God has done here in Jericho and in I within the promised land. So what does Israel do? What has Israel done in the past? Surely Israel has learned from the past, right? Surely at the end of chapter 9, after they turned to the Lord and they listened to the entire law of God read to them, and then they committed themselves back to that covenant, surely they got it right this time, right? Surely they didn't go after I, after two, a couple spies reported about 3,000 men will do it. Surely they didn't say, all right, well, we take you at your word. But we see what the Israelites do, and this is the beauty of this story that I think we need to take, is that God deals, loves, and works with slow spiritual learners. And we should praise God for that. God does not look at Israel saying, you have to have this all figured out and you have to do it right every single time and then I will continue to move you forward into my promise. What does God do in the book of Joshua? He continues to push His people even though they go through difficult circumstances because it doesn't matter how slow we are spiritually in following God or trusting God or being faithful to God, God will never turn back on His promise. Never. His promises will never go void. His word will never be incorrect. But the Israelites were slow spiritual learners. Well, everything appears to be good. And we've already seen in Joshua how that's worked out. Right? Achan saw the things to be devoted to destruction. He coveted, he stole, and he hid it. It led to his own destruction. I, the king of I, or the spies saw that I appeared weak, and so they led 3,000 troops, who 36 of them died. The king of eyes saw Joshua in the army thinking, we can take him once again. So he led his entire army out, leaving the city defenseless. And 30,000 troops ambushed the city and brought it to its ground. We have to be aware that our sinful nature, and all of us have sinful nature, just like the Israelites, just like Joshua in this moment, our sinful nature causes a perception deception. We cannot see things fully as the way they are. But think about how many decisions we make every single day based upon what we think looks good, sounds good, or feels good. How many of y'all decided what you're going to wear today? Small choice, but yeah, and we're all thankful that you're wearing something, right? <laughs> How many of y'all decided to eat some, at least something today? At least something. Maybe it's just the piece of gum in your mouth at this very moment or the tic-tac you had before you sat down. We all decided what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat. Some of y'all, how many have already decided where you're going to eat after we say our final amen? Or now I've kind of lost you and you're starting to think about what are we going to eat, you know? We make decisions at work all the time. We make decisions for our marriage and our relationships all the time. Big and small ones. We make decisions that will impact our family 
And sometimes we don't want to think about it. You know, where are we going to go on vacation this year? How many of us actually stop and pray about where we're going to go on vacation? How many of us actually stop and pray about where we're going to take our family to eat? Or what we're going to turn on the TV to watch as a family? Or where we're going to sit when we have family time to eat? How many of us stop and pray about what, Lord, what should I wear today? What is something that I could wear that is going to bring you glory? You'd be amazed how many people will begin conversations simply by looking at what you're wearing. Like, oh, what's that? What is that, Brian? There you go. They see something on your shirt. They see a necklace you wear, earrings you wear, some sort of jewelry you're wearing. Like, oh, what, what is that? What's that mean? But we make decisions based upon things that we perceive, things that we feel, things that sound good. And what we see over and over in Joshua and throughout the Bible is when we make those sort of decisions without seeking the Lord first, it will lead to disaster. Eve saw that the fruit was good. We all know how that went, right? Israel here in chapter 9, they perceived that what the Gibeonites were saying was true, and that it was good. And that it was right. And so what happened? Well, a Trojan horse came into camp. Let's pick up in verse 16. The end of three days after they made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and they lived among them. I don't know how that happened. And, and sometimes scripture is so to the point about telling us why and how things happen. But not here. The narrator didn't think it was important. Perhaps the Gibeonites were celebrating in camp. Yes, we're going to live. Yes, this is a, I mean, that would be a reason to celebrate, right? They're not going to kill us. <laughs> Perhaps they were just bragging about it. Perhaps it's because we know that later on that Joshua sent spies to check out the next city, which would have been Gibeon. Because verse 17 says, The people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. And now the cities were Gibeon, uh, Shephira, Beroth, and Kirith, Jerem. And the people of Israel did not attack them. Because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And that never happens when God's people are upset with their spiritual leaders, right? But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. And this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon, them, upon us, because the oath that we swore to them. Verse 21, leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of woods and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. And Joshua summoned them, this is the Gibeonites, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God, which is the exact curse that Noah gave to his son Ham after the flood when Ham saw that his father was naked. He said, you will be a servant to your brothers. And they answered Joshua, because it is told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. So now the truth has fully come out and the people of God have completely investigated this situation. They go and find out that these people they made a treaty with are close by. It's a city that God told them they were to conquer and to take and devote to destruction. Except they've made this treaty. And Joshua wants to know, why did you lie to us? And what is the Gibeonites response? 
we've never heard of God. We just thought it was a good idea at the time. No, what is their response? Fear. They, this, this chapter, if we actually look at what the Gibeonites knew, they knew that the Israelites were driven by God to conquer Jericho and I. They knew that the Israelites were driven by God to take, uh, come out of Egypt, to take the, the kings beyond the Jordan River and across the Jordan River. And they knew, they knew that the Israelites were here because the Lord God had commanded Moses to drive everybody out. They had all the information they wanted, but you know what they did not do? They did not do what Rahab did. When Rahab heard such news, she submitted and surrendered to the word of God. These people felt, well, you know what? Maybe we can weasel our way out of this. Maybe if we just do something, we can get right with these people. You know, we do that a lot of times with God. If I just do the right thing, if I just act Christian enough, maybe I can get into heaven. Maybe I can be saved. And if that is your definition of salvation, if that is what you think is going to save you, then I'm just going to tell you in the most loving way I can, you are completely wrong. And you are completely lost. And you've bought into Satan's deception upon your heart. You can try to work your way, earn your way, do enough stuff to get in the right grace with God. And God doesn't want you to be like these Gibeonites. He wants you to be like the Israelites, who don't have it always figured out. But they always keep coming back to God and let God lead them. They're not always faithful. They don't always do things correctly. But the Israelites, they were deceived by their perception. We have that same problem because of our sin. But once they came to the full understanding, do you notice where Joshua puts them? Verse 21, Let the leader said to them, Let them live. And they came cutters of wood and jars of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. You almost have to read into that or just do a little you know, back search in history of what their position would be within the camp of Israel. I'll let you know so you don't have to figure it out later. What Joshua does is he puts the Gibeonites exactly where they need to be within the camp. They were going to be servants to the tabernacle and eventually servants to the temple. They were going to be surrounded by the Israelites completely worshiping God and bringing these sacrifices so they have a visual of it every single day. And as you read through history, even though this was deception at its fullest, a Trojan horse in the Israelite camp, the Gibeonites never become a plague upon Israel. They never become a plague upon Israel. They, they aid King Saul. They aid King David, King Solomon. They help Nehemiah rebuild the temple after the Babylonian captivity. They remain true to their word, which I think is a huge thing because I read this. And if you were Joshua, what would you do? You ever thought about that? If you were Joshua in this situation and this group of people came to you pretending to be something they were not, and then you find out they completely took you, they duped you, they lied to you, and you figure that out, what would you do in that situation? Would you honor your promise? You ever bought something, maybe a TV or a car, and it wasn't what you thought it would be? Did you keep it or try to return it? 
Did you praise the people who sold it to you? See, in our world, I think, you know, if, if we were to go, just put it on a small scale, if we were to go to the store and we were buy like, a 4K TV, we're told it's a 4K TV, it's the highest definition you can get, it's got the, if you want the curve, it's got the curve, it, it just, it automatically screens Netflix, you don't even have to have Wi-Fi at your house, it just picks up radio frequency, it's just so awesome, and we go and we buy this, and we bring it home, and we set it up, and it's like our massive 84-inch TV, and we're sitting like six feet away from it, so we can see every dimple on the person's face, and we're drooling, and we go to turn it on, and then we realize that it doesn't fill up the whole screen, it only fills up about five or three or four feet of the screen and it's in black and white and it doesn't pick up internet and it doesn't actually have any sound coming through it and when you can't get sound it's in a foreign language would we keep the tv if you just drop about two three thousand on it would you keep it load it back up you take it back to the store say look i don't know what you sold me but this ain't it joshua was completely duped he was completely fooled. And yet, what does Joshua do in this moment? He doesn't say, look, you lied to me, and so now the deal's off. We made a treaty with you, but you broke your word, so the deal's off. I mean, in our day and age, that's an act of war, right? What Joshua says is, he understood his word. That the promise he made to these people was not just a promise to the Gibeonites, it was a promise he made to God. And that promise was to be a be honored above all, of th all things. And the lesson for us, the, the, the one we want to hear is, is God deals with us slow spiritual learners. But the other lesson for us is we are to be truth givers and truth livers, no matter how hard it is. And our word as God's people has to mean something. It's about character. In the book of Numbers, I believe this is where Joshua turns to, because remember they just read the law in Numbers chapter 30. It says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That's Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus said, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. As God's people, we have to live such a way and speak such a way that our words mean something. And they stand for truth. Did you notice when the Israelites finally figured out what, the, what their leaders did and they came to Gibeon, do you notice how they responded? They murmured against their leaders. They grumbled in verse 18, then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. See, we may make promises, and sometimes when we make promises to people, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy for us to fulfill. And we may say, well, I didn't know all the information. I didn't have all the details. I didn't know this, and so it lets me out of my promise, not according to God's word. When I swear an oath, I don't just swear an oath to that person or those people. I swear an oath first to God, and I have to keep my oath. I think the greatest way we can see this in our world today is in the realm of marriage. Some of y'all saw in, uh, on our Facebook post, and I didn't post anything because I knew my mom and, and Jamie would post enough, but uh, yesterday my family and my mom's side of the family got together to celebrate my granny and granddad 
that celebrates 75 years of being married together. 75 years. That's a lifetime. They can easily say, I've known more life with you than without you. And, and it, it broke my heart. It broke Jamie's heart as we began, you know, being around him. We haven't been around my grand granddad as much in the past uh, couple years. But seeing how age had began to take a toll. Um, my granny asked me several times, you know, where's your wife? And then I'd bring Jamie and she goes, oh, she's a keeper for the fourth or fifth time. And where are your kids? Or she'd run into Abby and like, well, who do you belong to? Even though I already introduced them. And so their minds weren't exactly what they were. They were. You know, one thing that jumped out to Jamie and jumped out to me is Granny and grand, Granddad, even though they may not have remembered every face or name that sat around the table, is they remembered each other. Granny would stroke Granddad's face and give him a peck on the cheek. They'd have their own little conversation going. Even though we're all there for them, they would just be in their own little world. I guarantee you 75 years of being married to the same person was not always easy. When they got married, my granny just turned 16. My granddad went off to World War II. I guarantee not every decision they had to make was an easy one. But in our world, we seem to break vows because we, we don't realize that we're not making those commitments. And marriage is just a prime example. We're not making those commitments to just our spouse. We're not making those commitments to just the witnesses that are gathered at church that day. We're making our commitment to God. And so you put that in any sort of commitment you've made in your life, that's where it goes. I didn't make this commitment just to Jamie or just to Ethan or just to Abby. I didn't make this commitment just to Harvest Hill. I made this commitment first to God. I promised this to God. This is where I would be. This is what I would be involved in. This is what I would be doing. And I'm going to be here and be doing that because I don't want to break my vow to God. Maybe you're here and you've made a promise to God. But things haven't been going exactly the way you thought they would go if you made such a promise. I've been there. Well, God, I said I would do this if you did that. See, that's not the deal. It isn't a question whether he's going to be faithful. The question is really, are we going to be faithful? Are we going to be faithful through thick and thin when things don't go our way, when, when we do get tricked, when we do get lied to, when we feel like we've been totally, completely taken advantage of? I guarantee you that's exactly what Joshua felt and exactly what the Israelites felt because you know what they did? They stayed committed to their promise because they understood their word needed to hold value. You remember in the day when, well, some of us don't remember, but there was a day where you could just shake a hand. You remember, remember what that meant, John? I mean, you've you got some Texas roots in you, right? And what happened in Texas when you shook a hand on something? Done. Done. I mean, that was, that was a deal. That was a contract. Now we draw up 100-page contracts. Right? I mean, how many pages did you sign for a house? Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, if this is the point, you're going through this contract, like, just tell me where to sign. You don't even want to know what it's about. You're just signing. 
It used to be that we could just shake a hand on something and that would be it. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's how people looked at Christians today? That when we said something, we meant it and we would do anything to keep our word. We would show that we're going to be faithful because he is faithful and we're going to live out truth because he lived that truth no matter how hard it gets. And isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did for us? I'm the way and the truth. And when Jesus came to this earth, it got hard. It got difficult. He was betrayed. He was lied to. He was left alone. People thought he should be something that he didn't intend to be. And yet Jesus continued to live and speak truth, even though not everybody wanted to hear it. Not everybody wanted to accept it. But he did it all the way to the cross so he could die for us. And die for our sins. Die for that thing that makes us not be able to perceive things as they truly are and to perceive things fully as we need to, to see them. He died for that sin. They placed him in the tomb and then he rose three days later that we could be completely forgiven. And when we accept Jesus' sacrifice for our sins and his resurrection from the grave, we accept him as Lord and Savior and God's forgiveness. The Bible says we become saved, and this is a beautiful thing, is we did a relationship with God, and we, we get to pursue after God and seek His wisdom in every decision that we encounter in life. We go through some crazy stuff. But here's a huge blessing. Because I think we're, we're so quick to take our, our prayer requests that are huge to God, you know, sicknesses and illnesses and marriages and finances and, and those sort of things. But God is just as concerned for you in the big stuff as he is the small stuff. So this last week on men's Monday, or Monday's men's prayer, we have prayer time and we start sharing about people in the hospital and things like that. And I shared about an issue that I'll share with you. It's, it's a car issue. We don't have a car issue right now, but we're going to have to get another car. We want to get another car. And I felt kind of bad sharing that with them because we talked about people in the hospital, people going to the hospital, people having surgery. I'm like, well, yeah, we need a, I'd like for wisdom about buying a car. But we all know car salesmen can be deceivers, right? And we make, want to make a decision that when we buy that car, we want to drive it till you can't drive it anymore. And so God, I know God cares about the big stuff, and I know he cares about the little stuff in our life, just like he cares about yours. And you may be here this morning, and Satan is deceiving you just like the Gibeonites deceived Israel, and you're thinking, ah, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. I've heard this before. And my question for you is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? And if you have, my other question is, as God's people... Are you living out the vows and promises you gave to God? Chapter 10, if you want to read ahead. The promise they made with the Gibeonites comes back. And there's this prayer that Joshua makes about making the sun stand still. We're going to look at it next week. And God blesses that promise. And I believe God blesses that promise because the Israelites and Joshua were faithful to the promises they made. And so God blessed their endeavors no matter how difficult it was. Are you being faithful to the promises you have given God? We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask Jason and Mike to come up. If you need someone to pray with you, maybe you're struggling, maybe it's a difficult thing and you know you're wrestling with it. If you just need someone to pray with you, they're going to be down here to pray with you. 
if you're here this morning and, and you know just the Spirit has just hit your heart with it, you need to be saved. Then come down and, and pray with them. Just tell, hey, this is Mike, Mike, and this is Jason. Say, I, I want to be saved. Can you tell me how, how I can make that happen? Maybe you just need to come down and kneel before the Father. That's what these mats are down here on, on the floor for. And just apologize and repent of promises you've broken to Him foremost. This is going to be a time of invitation. I'm going to grab the guitar once more. We're going to sing a song I think is familiar to many of us. It's called Jesus Paid It All. And uh, if you're not familiar with the song, the opening verse, or the chorus is Jesus Paid It All, and all to Him I owe. And so that's the commitment we're making this morning. That everything I, I have, everything I am, I owe to Him. Because He paid it all, and I'm owned by Him. And so as I was preparing for this morning, it was just kind of those things I had to apologize to God for promises I had gone back on. And, and those broken promises to God actually impact not just my heart, but they impact my relationship with my family. It impacts my relationship with people in my life. It impacts my work. It impacts my outlook. And so that's where God's calling us back to, is just repent of that. And remember, God works with slow spiritual learners. Let's pray together, and let's sing this song to him. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, taking care of us. And Lord, you have paid it all. I pray for those who are here this morning that need to accept you as your Lord and Savior, Lord, that they would have the courage and strength just to come down and, and talk to Mike and Jason and say they want you. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning that your spirit is revealed to them that they've gone back on a promise they made to you. And out of your love and your mercy and your kindness and your discipline on us as your children, you're bringing us back to this, this beautiful moment to renew that covenant. And Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are completely and always faithful. And so let us praise you in this moment through this song of how you've paid it all and that we owe it all to you. And forgive us if we've held anything back from you. And praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.